and we are live. Welcome to this week's episode of MicroConf On Air. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Every Wednesday, we live stream for about 30 minutes. We cover topics related to building and growing ambitious startups that don't require us to work 80-hour weeks, raise millions in venture capital, or drive us to the brink of burnout. It's a great, uh, interesting week this week. I'm actually, it, it looks like I'm hovered, or you know, uh, sitting over here in the corner in the dark, thunder, lightning outside, and just trying to get enough light on me even to make this work has been a, a challenge. So um, it's going to be a fun a fun conversation today. I'm speaking with uh, Mr. Thomas Smale, who you may have heard of. He is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of SAS Mag and the co-founder of FE International, which is a mergers and acquisitions uh, broker, in essence, uh, M&A broker. And we're going to talk about how startups can leverage traditional media focusing on his experience around SASMAG. So SASMAG launched um, just a couple years ago, and I believe it's on a quarterly publication schedule. And, um, you know, as editor-in-chief, he obviously has experience with startups who want to be featured with uh, press releases, with um, media relationships, with all that. And, and you know, Thomas has um, quite a wealth of experience, even before FE International, he um, owned a number of, of websites and, and online properties and then turned that into a brokerage because he was buying and selling them. And so, you know, he's been on the marketing side. He's been now on the M&A side and he sees a lot of deals come through, whether for SaaS applications, um, uh, e-commerce sites, you know, WordPress plugins. I don't know how many, many of those they, they sell these days, but all types of web properties that, that come through FE. And then when they decided to launch SaaS Mag, um, you know, that has become one of the kind of industry trade publication, you know, for, for SaaS and it covers venture back and non-venture back. I've read several issues and now I'm, you know, you know, just thinking about how he can help us um, learn from all the experience that he has. If you have questions for Thomas, please put them in the MicroConf on air channel in MicroConf Connect. Um, if you're obviously, if you're not MicroConf Connect, microconfconnect.com will get you in there. And then MicroConf on air is the channel that I monitor and producer Xander is monitoring for your questions. And the questions can range from, range from things that we're going to talk about, like how startups can leverage traditional media, you know, being involved with this magazine and uh, press releases and, and media relationships. Or if you want to ask about SaaS valuations or about M&A stuff, about buy side, sell side, about, you know, any of that, um, Thomas really is a wealth of knowledge. So, but to kick us off, I'm curious, you know, what are some of the best stories founders can pitch that a, a, an outlet like SaaS Mag or another magazine might want to cover? Like how, how can founders get their story in the hands of the people that want to, you know, put them in, in, in a magazine? Yeah. So I think the first thing is there's no one size fits all approach. A publication like SaaS Mag or any, you call it a trade publication, which I think is a good way of talking about it. They'll often have like some very specific things they want to talk about, but also quite broad. If you go to somewhere like a, a tech crunch, I think traditionally they want to hear funding stories. They want to hear about the company that raised $100 million for their new AI idea or whatever it might be. Um, whereas if you go to them and say, hey, I just sold my bootstrap SaaS business for $2 million, like that's a fantastic outcome for that founder, but tech crunch don't care. Um, part of the reason we launched SASMAG in the first place is there was no one covering what we thought people would want to know about. Um, so first is like know the publication, pitching TechCrunch and SASMAG the same article is probably not going to be beneficial. Um, I think this is going for any outreach you're going to do. If you blast out 
200 emails that say exactly the same thing to 200 different publications or 200 podcasts or 200 blogs, whatever you're trying to achieve, you're going to get bad results. So figure out what that publication is talking about. Ultimately, they don't really care about you or what you think is important. They think about what they think their audience thinks is important. It's probably the easiest way of doing it is see what a particular journalist or the editor or whoever has published before and see what's done well for them. There are various tools out there you can kind of test and try to see what's been successful. But I mean, you know, at a very simple level, you could go on their Facebook page or Twitter, see how many shares or retweets a particular post has got. And if it's been popular, try and pitch them something similar. So it might be a, could be a founder story. Something like SASMAG, we like founder stories, but there are a lot of places that don't want to cover founder stories. They want to talk about fundraising. Um, so you really have to kind of put it into context like that. But I think the best way to do it is firstly, figure out what a particular publication is talking about at the time, what they've published in the past, and to your best judgment, what they've what they've been successful with in the past. Because ultimately, most journalists, and even, even our team at SASMAG, they're not judged by revenue, because it's a, it's a free magazine, but we care about how popular a particular article is and what feedback we get. So that's all someone, a journalist or an editor is looking for, it's kind of popularity. So if they think it's gonna be popular, um, then I always think that's the best place to start. Right. Yeah. And I think that's good to get inside the mind of, of a writer um, or an editor is to think what are, what is their end goal? And starting with the end goal of page views or social shares or whatever that may be, and then kind of backing in that if you are going to pitch um, that you, you kind of craft the pitch around that. Uh, I got a couple questions from audience members and I love to give those priority, um, you know, just so we can dive in, even though they're, they're perhaps a, a left turn from the topic we were just talking about. So these are more M&A questions. When buying a business with a plant and equipment, those assets can be used to get financing to buy the business. What are financing options for buying website or web-based businesses? Um, so I guess the lazy answer is they're relatively limited. Um, the vast majority of buyers we work with either have their own cash or they've already raised cash from someone else. Um, the most common form of bank financing we see is an SBA loan. Uh, SBA loans are somewhat restrictive and they have a bunch of different rules and regulations around what you need to do in order to get one. Um, and that generally starts with um, years of tax returns on the business. So generally, if, if the business is based in the US or the owner of the business is based in the US and the business is at least five years old, it's reasonably likely it will qualify for SBA. Um, if not, then it can be challenging. Um, so I guess the short answer is there are not too many ways to do it unless you have an SBA qualified business or you have access to capital yourself. Um, so I guess that's somewhat created a barrier to entry in the in the industry where the vast majority of buyers out there are already independently wealthy or have access to capital that when you're starting out might be a little bit more difficult. Right, right. And seller financing as well, right? If a seller is willing to... Yeah, it, it, exactly. 68% um, down. The, yeah, I'd say the rule of thumb we tend to tell people is 
if a business is below half a million, you're probably going to be paying cash. Above that level, you can definitely get seller financing. Um, and again, this is, seems somewhat, I don't know if you describe it as like elitist or a barrier to entry, but the more of a track record you have and the more successful you've been, the more likely you are to get seller financing. So if right. you sold a business for $10 million and you say, hey, I'll pay you 60% up front and 10% of the revenue for the next three years, I'm going to grow the business, then you're more likely to accept that deal than from the person who's like first time buyer is a little bit nervous and has never run a business before. Cool. So that's good. That's good info um, about seller financing and about SBA. That was my understanding as well. Second question on M&A stuff. It's from Rahul in Microconf on air. He says, what action items would you suggest for non-US based SaaS products wanting to sell and market for US based small and medium sized business customers? Yeah, I, I guess this is something I did my did myself moving. I mean, so FE International, the backstory is we were originally founded in the UK. We moved out to the US. Um, I think it does depend a little bit on your audience. I think some people want to see that you are physically based in the US. Um, mm -hmm. So part of the reason I now live in the US is I spend a lot of my time, as you know, traveling to conferences and events um, like MicroConf and meeting different people in person. If you have a SaaS business and a lot of other businesses, that's not necessary. So your physical location shouldn't matter too much. Um, a lot of people ask us if we're ever thinking about selling the business in the future. Again, it doesn't really matter where you're based um, now or in the future. Um, buyers generally don't really care. Just the beauty of this industry is you, you can run a business from, from anywhere. So there isn't actually any reason why you need to be based in a specific place. Um, if you really need to in the short term, something we did years ago before we physically moved out to the US is you can rent an office space, go to a WeWork or a Regist or something like that and physically get an office space. Um, you can get a US phone number. All of those kind of things are, are easy to do. Um, but I think if you're trying to pretend you are something that you are not in the long run, that's probably not going to be the most successful strategy for you. So my suggestion would be figure out if you truly do need to be um, in the US. One thing you definitely do need to do um, is have the ability to work around US time zones. Um, if you're not able to do that, I think you're really going to struggle doing business in, in the US in general. And that to me has always been the biggest factor. People don't really care where you're based as long as you work around them. Um, and then like I said, if you need a physical location, get a physical location. But for the vast majority of businesses, it's not a problem. Yeah, that's That was the big one I was going to mention is I think folks in the US, especially with SaaS, are used to a lot of them being located here. And so they are used to, if there's live chat, that it is, you know, that's manned, you know, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. or whatever um, during US hours, or if it's email support, that it's not this 24-hour lag. There are obvious exceptions, um, but, you know, even uh, the Australian... SaaS, I think like Zero is based in Australia, like they have staff that is doing business, you know, that, that is doing support during business hours, you know, around the world. I think the only two other things I would say are pretty obvious, but um, obviously you need, everything needs to be in English because so many people in the U.S. don't speak a second language and um, pricing in U.S. dollars because folks are turned off here by euros and pounds as odd as that, or, you know, as odd as that may sound. I know there's more tolerance for that in other parts of the world, but 
U.S. folks, businesses tend to be, you know, pretty um, focused on the dollar. So those are those are three things I'd be thinking about. All right. Oh, okay. So Rahul is clarifying. He said, my question was more on how to do our PR and marketing if we are a non-U.S. company. And for all, all um, in on that first, I mean, I don't, I just don't know that there's, I don't know how much of a difference, I don't know that anyone cares. You know, it depends on what kind of marketing you're doing. If you're doing great content, I don't look to see where the company is if I'm reading your blog post. If you're running ads on Facebook or I'm clicking through a Google ad, like I don't know that that there's much of a difference for me. The only thing I sometimes know is is the way that UK English and and you know American English have O versus OU, or there's there are spellings that will tip me off to hey, this someone's in Europe, but that isn't necessarily a huge a huge issue. I think. What what are your thoughts, Thomas? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there are some exceptions. So if you're if you're publishing. I'm in San Francisco. If you publish the San Francisco Chronicle or something like that, they probably want stories about companies from San Francisco. Um, some outlets will care about your location. The vast majority will not. Um, and I mean, talking about a place like San Francisco, for example, the, not the vast majority, I don't actually know the data, but a lot of the companies here are run by people who are immigrants, either first or second generation. So it's very normal to be hey, this is Thomas from England. It's, it's not uncommon at all. So I would say, to answer the question in a very direct way, I think you're overthinking it if you're worried about pitching for, for press. If you, think, if you think your location is the only reason why you're struggling to get press, if that is the actual issue, then that's probably not the actual case. There are probably other factors involved. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I think there's press is one thing and marketing, you know, it really depends on the channels you're using. I think another question that, that we had for you um, is you often hear like, hey, if you are going to do PR, if you are going to try to get written up, that you should look at building relationships, you know, whether it's relationship with an editor, with a magazine, with, an, with a, a writer, like what are some of the best ways you've seen people build those relationships to get? Um, coverage over time, right? Because this is not a PR is not a one-time thing. If you want to get written up in SAS Mag or as you know, as you mentioned, TechCrunch or any other outlet, you're you're going to want that periodically as you launch something big, as you get on the Inc. 5000, as you raise a round of funding, you know, as you sell whatever it is. So having these relationships um, can be valuable. But what are some of the best ways you've seen folks build relationships with the the writers or the editors? Yes, I think if you look towards if you want an ongoing relationship, like first impressions are really important. So assuming your pitch is successful and you get accepted by a publication or multiple publications, and that will happen, you'll get lots and lots of no's and you'll always get no's for kind of the entire history of your business. But some people will say yes. Once you get a yes, then it's really important to firstly, I appreciate this is ironic seeing as my video cut out midway through the stream but it being reliable and being available. So it's kind of doing everything that the producer or editor or whatever it is wants. So making their life, making their life easier. So not doing what I'm doing here to Xander, but doing what, providing content on time, um, being receptive to changes. I think a lot of founders get quite protective over their kind of content and their style, but ultimately the editor is the one, or the editor-in-chief is ultimately the one who has final say on what content goes out so if they give you feedback even if you don't necessarily like it when you're starting out my suggestion would be just go with it um and then the really important thing is once the 
content or your article or video or whatever it is is published, make sure you're putting the effort in to promote it, um, sharing it on all your channels. Because ultimately, if the piece is successful, um, it's very much a meritocracy. The journalist or the editor will then want to work with you again, um, and they'll come back. If you don't bother sharing it or you don't put any effort in, um, you're not thankful to the, the journalist, and there's thousands of other people in their inbox who will do a better job. Um, so I guess that is another thing. This might be extremely obvious, but like journalists and editors are real people. Send them a send them a thank you note and say, really appreciate you featuring me. Happy to be a resource again in the future. So it may well be you start out by um, something. You might just start out by, for example, with SASMAG, we often feature people just on our blog, and you might just provide a one-line quote for a particular blog post, and it might be the first person to reply to our email out of 10 people email gets the quote. And then that quote might then turn into a uh, interview on our blog. And then if the blog post does well, um, you then, I guess, graduate to the print version of the magazine. Um, so that's how we look at it. Every publication will be slightly different. But for us, it's kind of you can kind of graduate up from kind of quote to full article to front page. Um, so that's definitely a way to look at it. And like you mentioned already, Robert, is a is a long term thing. You're not going to get kind of on the front page in a month. Expect these things to take usually years or definitely months to make any sort of progress, particularly with a, a publication which like SASMAG is published every quarter. We generally know what content is going in for the next almost the next twelve months in advance. And when that will just change the, the the topics. But the people who are being included are usually somewhat fixed. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's good advice. I like I like that uh, thought process about almost graduating from the blog to, uh, you know, up, up into the magazine. Um, yeah, that's cool. I've also heard advice given of, and I've never done this personally, but Hey, if there's a reporter that you see or, or a writer that you see writing at whatever, if, whether it's SASMAG or TechCrunch or whatever, follow them on Twitter and engage with them. And if you, as you become known to them, they start to get curious. I've had people do this to me and wind up on startups for the rest of us, you know, or wind up on microcom stage where I start seeing their name and I'm like, how oh, this person's like, interacting in a lot of conversations that I am and I haven't, I don't know them yet. So I click through and I start learning about them. Oh, they're running an app. That's interesting. And then I hear them on a podcast a month later and I'm like, Oh, that's that person who did, you know, and suddenly you start connecting the dots. I'm curious if you feel like that um, is, is a feasible approach for, for to, to get in the door. I would say definitely um, because talking about successful pitches, um, it's very obvious that someone sent you an individual email, like you already mentioned. It's also very obvious if someone has actually specifically read or watched what you've said or written. And I guess this, this also counts for getting like busy people, like founders to reply. For example, if you want me to reply to an email um, and it's cold, if you have very obviously read or listened to something I've said in the past and you have a question about it, I will almost always respond to that email. If you send me a generic email where you clearly have not and you just want kind of generic advice, it's highly unlikely I will. Um, and journalists and editors are exactly the same because a lot of them are, they like writing and they like to be intellectually challenged and they like to talk and discuss the content they have written about or produced in the, in the past. So if you engage with them in a genuine way, um, 
I wouldn't try and be annoying about it, so don't constantly kind of tweet them, but sharing their stuff, um, I think, is always a, a good way to go. Um, and you should be doing this way before you have anything to, to pitch them. So hopefully by the time you are pitching, it's not actually a cold email at all because they at least recognize your name or think they recognize your name. So in the sea of 500 emails they've received that day, if they see the surname Walling, they're like, oh, I've heard of this guy before. I think he's got a, a podcast. And then they're going right, to more good. likely to read your email. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, sir. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. We're at time for today. Folks want to follow you on Twitter. You are at Thomas Smale. That's S-M-A-L-E. And of course, SASMAG is at SASMAG on Twitter and SASMAG.com. Thanks for joining me on uh, MicroConf on Air today, sir. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks, everyone. All right. I want to tell you about MicroConf Remote. It is September 1st, and we want to hear your story. You can head to microconfremote.com, and if you submit a 60-second video sharing a story about a win, a fail, or your favorite MicroConf memory, you can get 50% off your ticket to MicroConf Remote. Even if you don't want to do that, you should head there and get a ticket because it's going to be a really cool event. Um, this is not the typical virtual summit that you've been attending. Uh, we're really going all in on some novel and, and creative ideas and, and have been hustling and working to do something that is just, it's going to be five hours of coolness and I don't think you're going to want to miss it.